Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about gynecologic oncology with Dr. Gloria Huang. Dr. Huang is an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, Gloria, let's talk a little bit about GYN cancers. Tell us a bit about what incorporates that spectrum of GYN cancers. When we talk about gynecologic malignancies, it's really more than just one organ, right? Absolutely. So GYN cancers are cancers that arise from the female reproductive tract. The three most common are ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, of which the most common is endometrial cancer, and cervical cancer. Um, I did pull a few statistics related to these cancers and their incidence in Connecticut, um, since we're in the state of Connecticut. Um, so ovarian cancer, there are about 270 new cases per year in Connecticut and about 160 deaths per year. Um, this is similar, a slightly higher incidence in Connecticut compared to nationally, but a lower death rate. Endometrial cancer is the most common GYN cancer, 890 cases per year in Connecticut and 120 deaths per year. Again, this is a bit higher than the incidence nationally, however, again, a lower death rate compared to the rest of the United States. And cervical cancer is less common due to the availability of effective screening, about 120 new cases per year in Connecticut. So one of the things, you know, I, I think that's important to point out to our audience members is that, you know, people often get very perturbed when they hear about higher incidence numbers. But to your point, having a higher incidence and a lower mortality is actually often a hallmark of, of good screening. When you have good screening, you find more cancers, but you tend to find them at an earlier stage so that mortality is lower. So tell us a little bit about the screening for various gynecologic malignancies. Do we have good screening? So that's a great question. Um, first of all, to touch on your point, yes, I think in Connecticut, we are doing very well in general with cancer screening. So I also reviewed that, and I saw that we're among the top um, doing the best among all states in the U.S. with regard to breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening. So about 80% and 75% of uh, Connecticut citizens are getting the appropriate screening, which is much better than almost any other state in the United States. Um, in terms of cervical cancer, one of the most effective ways of preventing cervical cancer and cervical precancers is vaccination against human papillomavirus. So HPV vaccination, we're also doing pretty well in Connecticut compared to the rest of the U.S. Of course, still not as good as some other Western countries in general. But in Connecticut, currently more than half of girls are being vaccinated and almost half of boys. So that is in the top quartile among the United States and in the upper half for boys. So that's pretty, pretty good and hopefully will continue in that direction. 
So let's let's pause there for a minute and and just talk about uh, prevention. So so when we talk about screening, I, I think it's important for our audience to remember that. Uh, screening is not prevention, at least not primary prevention. So, you know, I often will have people come to me and say, you know, I've been getting a mammogram every year and now you found breast cancer. Um, But that's the point of screening. Screening helps us to find more cancers. But the nice thing about the HPV vaccine is that it really is primary prevention. It prevents people from getting cancer to begin with. But one of the things that you mentioned, and I think it's really important to highlight, is that the HPV vaccine is both for girls and for boys, although it's often thought of as prevention for cervical cancer. And of course, that doesn't really apply to boys. So can you, Gloria, go over for us just so that everybody's really clear on what are the guidelines for vaccination for HPV uh, in this country? Who should be vaccinated? Um, at what age? How many doses? And why is it that it's important that boys also get vaccinated? Sure, definitely. So first of all, in terms of cancer prevention, there is protection against HPV-associated precancers and uh, other HPV-associated cancers besides cervical cancer. So other cancers of the genital tract of men or women as or of the um, anal area, as well as head and neck cancers, many of which are uh, and oropharyngeal cancers, many of which can be HPV-associated. Um, in terms of why it's so important for both boys and girls to be vaccinated, not only for their own personal protection, um, as we talked about, but also for the concept of herd immunity. So what we find in other countries, once they reach a certain threshold of the population being vaccinated, there's less, much less transmission and transmission rates so that even uh, people who can't be vaccinated or don't get vaccinated um, are protected. Um, in terms of when vaccination is effective, so this is a preventive vaccine. There's no sh- ben- uh, sh- currently no um, FDA-approved therapeutic vaccine for HPV. And so um, really it's effective when it's given prior to any exposure to HPV. So that's why it's recommended to be given as part of routine childhood vaccines in the pediatrician's office, usually given between ages 9 and 11. I believe currently is um, typically is covered by insurance between at least by age 9 to 26, but I think the optimal age range is towards the younger part of that age range. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for our audience members, remember that young girls and young boys, before they've ever gotten exposed to HPV, uh, should really get vaccinated because this isn't just for cervical cancer. It's for anal cancers. It's for head and neck cancers. Um, It it prevents even precancerous conditions, uh, genital warts and so on. Really important uh, get vaccinated. And while herd immunity is is a good concept, if all of us thought, well, everybody else will get vaccinated and we'll benefit from herd immunity, that concept doesn't work. So uh, so do yourselves, your children and the world a favor um, and get vaccinated. My my short plug for for the hour. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit now about secondary prevention or, or what what many of us call screening. So early detection. When we think about 
cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer. Do we have good screening techniques, good ways of picking up these cancers early before they can present it at a late stage? So really preventing death from these cancers by picking them up early. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, let me start with ovarian cancer because that is the leading cause of GYN cancer death. So it is the fifth most common cause of cancer death in women. And unfortunately, a lot of that is because most patients prevent, present at the time of diagnosis already with advanced metastatic disease. So um, patients who have uh, have no people who've died of ovarian cancer or um, or uh, are aware of the lethality of ovarian cancer often ask me, well, why doesn't everyone just get an ultrasound or a CA-125 blood test? Wouldn't that be helpful? Well, unfortunately, that's not the answer either because there have been very large randomized controlled trials, which is the gold standard of clinical trials, doing looking at what kind of population-based screening can be used for average um, average patients, not particularly those at high risk, but those at average risk. And enrolling hundreds of thousands of women, the largest trials were done in the United States and in the UK. And basically, the bottom line is there was no reduction in ovarian cancer mortality in the screen groups compared to the control groups using different modalities of screening, whether it's a blood test such as CA-125 together with an ultrasound, ultrasound alone, or even what looked the most promising, which is the rate of change of, of uh, the CA-125 blood test. There was some suggestion in the UK trial that perhaps a, a slight stage shift to earlier stage of diagnosis seen in the CA-125 rate of change algorithm testing, but still really overall demonstrating no survival benefit, no decrease in ovarian cancer mortality using this population-based screening. So what we can focus on are things that can be done to decrease the risk of developing ovarian cancer. And um, so then, uh, as I said, we need to hopefully uh, do research and de uh, determine new and better ways to do ovarian cancer screening effectively. Um, but in the meantime, I did want to share a few factors which we know are protective and can lead to a reduced risk of developing ovarian cancer. Um, so some of these are things that we very commonly do in our everyday lives. So one would be using, uh, taking oral contraceptive pills, birth control pills. So taking birth control pills during reproductive years um, for at least a year actually is associated with 50% uh, decreased risk approximately of developing ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer in, in later life. Um, both ovarian and endometrial cancer are more common in the postmenopausal um, older age group. So that's one thing. And um, another thing is um, tubal ligation or hysterectomy. Um, both of those are associated with a decreased risk um, as well as IUD use. Now, one thing I also wanted to talk about, which seems to be even more effective than tubal ligation, is removal of the fallopian tubes. Um, previously, there was a suggestion, why not remove the ovaries prophylactically um, for patients who are undergoing hysterectomy for a benign condition like fibroids? Unfortunately, large study, um, one of which was uh, published a couple years ago in the nurses' health study group, showed that removing the ovaries before menopause for preventive reasons actually had 
significant downsides. So that could be associated with increased risk of heart disease, coronary artery disease, or even stroke at a later age. So there's significant downsides to removing the ovaries. However, what's very interesting is large registry-based trials have shown that patients who've had their fallopian tubes removed, which doesn't affect the hormones, actually could have 25 to even 65% reduced risk of ovarian cancer. Um, and, uh, and this goes along with what we now know about ovarian cancer, that most of the high-grade aggressive types actually arise from the tips of the fallopian tubes, the fimbria, rather than the ovaries. So potentially, you can have the protection against ovarian cancer without the downsides of the changes in the hormones and the early menopause. Um, so that's something that I think is being widely used. I mean, it's something that I've always done um, for patients undergoing benign hysterectomy is um, typically remove the fallopian tubes because it really adds minimal operative time or risk while having the benefit not only of preventing decreasing ovarian cancer, but also reducing risks of cysts and other problems. Um, so that's something that I would highly encourage patients to discuss with their GYN. So... So certainly a, a, an option for people undergoing surgery. We are going to have to take a short break for a medical minute. When we come back after the break, we'll talk more about how you can reduce your risk and potentially novel treatments for gynecologic cancers with my guests, Dr. Gloria Huang. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Gloria Huang. We're here talking about gynecologic cancers. Now, right before the break, Gloria, you were telling us that, sadly, although ovarian cancer is the leading gynecologic malignancy causing death in this country, there really is not good screening. In other words, there is no blood test. There is no ultrasound that is going to find ovarian cancer early. There are things, however, that can reduce your risk. Taking oral contraceptive pills, for example, may reduce your risk of developing cancer of the ovaries in later years. And one of the things that you mentioned right before the break, which is seemingly highly effective, is salpingo-oophorectomy, prophylactically removing the ovarian tubes um, to reduce cancer because many ovarian cancers actually don't arise from the ovary themselves, but actually from the fimbria, the little uh, 
finger-like projections that come off of, of the fallopian tubes. Now, clearly, Gloria, you, you wouldn't recommend that for somebody at average risk who isn't undergoing surgery, would you? Or is this something that everyone should get simply to reduce their ovarian cancer risk down the line after they're finished having children and they no longer need that part of their tubes? So uh, what I was referring to is sometimes called opportunistic salpingectomy. So basically uh, removing the tubes at a convenient time if the patient is undergoing pelvic surgery anyways, such as a laparoscopic hysterectomy for another reason, or if they're having an elective tubal ligation because they're completed childbearing instead of having a tubal ligation to transect the tube, which in itself does confer some protection. People hypothesize because it's blocking factors or um, cells from coming from the uterus, but actually removing the fallopian tube, which really only adds a few minutes and um, doesn't uh, really um, add to the complexity of the surgery much. So that would be an option is the opportunistic salpingectomy in average at-risk women who are undergoing surgery for other reasons. Now, in terms of who should be having surgery specifically for risk reduction, that would be patients who are at increased risk for ovarian cancer. So that would include patients who, um, for example, have a hereditary inherited change in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, or there are some other um, hereditary uh, syndromes that also increase the risk of ovarian cancer that are a bit less commonly associated, but um, those would include Lynch syndrome um, and then some less common ones, such as Cowden syndrome. But at any rate, so patients who have a family history, first of all, if you you have a family history of ovarian cancer, um, all patients who've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer should see a genetic counselor and consider undergoing genetic testing because up to one in five women with ovarian cancer do have a a change in the most commonly the BRCA1 or 2 gene that they've inherited from their mother or father and that may uh, it may may not even they may not even be aware of that because there may not be any known family history but so all patients with um, with ovarian, newly diagnosed ovarian cancer should see a genetic counselor and consider having genetic testing. For patients who have a first-degree relative with ovarian cancer, again, I would suggest seeing a genetic counselor. Or if they have a personal history of breast cancer at a younger age or multiple family members with breast cancer, or a, a second-degree, first- or second-degree relatives with ovarian cancer, all of those would prompt consideration of genetic testing. Patients who are known to be at elevated risk of ovarian cancer, currently the standard of care would be to remove the tubes and the ovaries, which is called risk-reducing salpingoophrectomy. But um, there are clinical trials going on now to see if patients may have another option, which would be a salpingectomy alone with a delayed ophrectomy um, at an age closer to natural menopause. Again, that wouldn't be considered standard of care at this time, but it's something that's being evaluated as a potential alternative to try to avoid some of the harms of early menopause. So there seems to be some good um, both surgical and potentially medical ways uh, to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. What about other cancers? Yes, so endometrial cancer, as I said, is actually the most commonly diagnosed GYN cancer. And one of the major risk factors for endometrial cancer is 
being overweight or obese. So um, again, I just did check for Connecticut. Actually, we have a slightly lower rate of overweight or obesity compared to the rest of the United States. However, um, so that uh, about a quarter of, of women in Connecticut are in the obese range. But more than half, well over half, 62% are overweight or obese, although that is lower than the general United States population. Um, So we do know that trying to maintain an ideal body weight, physical activity, and plenty of vegetables can be helpful for um, protecting against endometrial cancer. Um, One of the major risk factors for developing endometrial cancer is having had a history of endometrial hyperplasia. So when your uterine lining shows signs of abnormal growth or proliferation and atypia, and that's often driven by um, factors that are related to obesity, such as too high estrogen levels or unopposed estrogen. So just just to pause there for a moment. So let's say you are overweight, many of us are overweight, um, and you have endometrial proliferation or whatever you have as a result of being overweight. You hear this show on Yale Cancer Center Answers, and you decide, that's it, I am going to try to lose weight because that will reduce my risk not only of endometrial cancers, but a whole variety of other cancers, not to mention heart disease and many other things that take people prematurely. Um, If you lose weight afterwards, do you in fact lower your risk? Or is it that if you were overweight during your reproductive years, your fate's kind of sealed? Well, there definitely can be immediate benefits to weight loss. So for example, in patients who have undergone, well, this would be a more uh, abrupt example, but in patients who've undergone bariatric surgery and have had their endometrium looked at, some of those changes can actually reverse quite rapidly with mm. weight loss. Um, you're right that there, is, there are some factors related to lifetime exposures. So for example, cancer risk can even be influenced by childhood or adolescent age obesity, Um, but there's still clear benefits to weight loss even in the short term. Um, regarding the the how to manage hyperplasia, so what's really important is hyperplasia, that's the abnormal growth of the endometrium. If there's atypia in the cells, that's really considered on the continuum of a true endometrial cancer, and often there can be concurrent cancer cells mixed in with that. And so really the standard care is hysterectomy for patients who have hyperplasia with atypia. It can be individualized for patients who are young younger and want to retain their uterus because of childbearing purposes or other reasons, um, then there can be uh, medical management using progesterone agents to try to counteract, counteract the changes induced by the excess estrogen. Um, however, uh, many, uh, many times the, the problem can persist or return, and so the more definitive management is hysterectomy. Okay. And, and and as we talked about in the first example of ovarian cancer, if you're at average risk for ovarian cancer, but you have endometrial hyperplasia, and you're going to undergo a hysterectomy as a result, should you have your, your tubes taken at the same time? 
Yes, you should definitely have your tubes taken at the same time because there's basically no downside to it and it is protective against ovarian cancer. Okay, there you go. What about that? That leads us to cervical cancer, right? Oh, yes. Uh, So cervical cancer is quite different from ovarian and endometrial cancer because there is very effective proven screening methods for um, actually that are very effective at detecting precancer, cervical precancer. Another word for that is cervical dysplasia, or the technical term is cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. So that's when cells have shown changes resulting from persistent HPV infection and the changes have not led to any invasive cancer yet, but are at a state where they can still be very easily treated and therefore prevent cervical cancer. And so so basically when we're talking about cervical cancer screening, we're talking about pap smears, right? So here's my question. There are some of us who um, were born in an era prior to when HPV vaccine was implemented, so didn't get vaccinated, and so therefore um, undergo cervical cancer screening. The people who are now coming through the pike, right, are are children who are vaccinated. Do they still need cervical cancer screening with pap smears? Yes, absolutely. At this time, cervical cancer screening is the same for um, women who were previously vaccinated or not previously vaccinated, although for all groups, the frequency of screening has been greatly reduced because of the improvements in screening. So in the first days of pap smears, it was really literally a smear of cells on a slide that would be stained and looked at under a microscope. You know, now really the standard is a liquid cytology Um, So that means cells are put into a liquid fixative, and basically that way, instead of getting clumps of cells, you have nice single cells. And usually uh, most labs have a combination of automated screening as well as uh, a review by by an expert. Um, And then on top of that, it is very common these days to have co-testing, so detection of high-risk HPV types, which is done from the very same container, actually from the very same container that you have the cytology that's looking at the cells. You can also test for high-risk HPV types. You can even test for the exact strain of high-risk HPV, which is very commonly done um, since high-risk types 16 and 18 are associated with more persistence, higher risk of persistence, and um, even screening for um, cervical infections such as chlamydia or gonorrhea can all be done from the same uh, vial of fluid. And so, you know, one of the questions that I think our audience members may be asking themselves is, you know, many of the vaccines that are available for HPV now um, really are very protective against those high-risk strains. Uh, so HPV 16, 18. So why is it that people still need to get pap smears if they've already been vaccinated? Well, that is a good question, but I would have to say that because we're so recently into the area of HPV vaccination, um, we do know that they're highly, highly protected ag- protected against the types contained in the vaccine, um, which 
as long as there hasn't been a prior exposure. Um, I think right now, first of all, the the uptake of vaccination and the age groups being vaccinated is highly variable, um, and uh, and even. Um, some patients may recall being vaccinated, but only went for one shot, not the two, sh- two or three shots. So, um, so there's a lot of variability. And so how this will in the future impact screening um, remains to be determined. Of course, many of the patients also are much younger than the peak incidence of these changes. So cervical cancer, um, the peak incidence is later in life in the 40s. So, um, so there are a lot of unknowns still in terms of how we might be able to modify cervical cancer screening in the future. Dr. Gloria Huang is an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.